Welcome to the Spot Actor Podcast. I'm Dr. Trevor Cates. On today's podcast, we're discussing the four seasons and how to live more in balance with them for our health and well-being. My guest is Dallas Hartwig, who is well known as co-founder of the wildly popular Whole30 program. He is a functional medicine practitioner, nutritionist, and physical therapist, but his true profession is a lifelong learner. He has presented over 150 nutrition and physical performance seminars focusing on catalyzing positive change. He's a New York Times bestselling author of It Starts With Food and The Whole 30. He has appeared on The Dr. Oz Show, Good Morning America, The View, and Nightline, and his work has been featured in hundreds of print articles worldwide. He also has a new book, The Four Seasons Solution. In today's interview, Dallas shares his transition from Whole30 to Four Seasons and what his research writing his latest book helped reveal about living more in balance. He shares how the seasons tie into specific hormones and he provides recommendations for sleep, movement, food, and relationships that are more in harmony with our natural rhythms. So please enjoy this interview. Dallas, it's great to have you on the Spot Actor Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. So you've been busy. You've got your second book now and two, two books now on food. Uh, so tell us about the, your, your newest thing about the seasons, the four seasons. This is really fascinating. Yeah. 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 So um, my new book, The Four Seasons Solution, is um, kind of zooming out from food as a focal point. You know, my earlier work has been mostly around food. And of course, a lot of people know me for my work in the Whole30. And, um, you know, the, the first concept, you know, when I first started doing speaking and writing on food was that, like, it starts with food. Like, that's the, the important idea, you know, that it, it's so profound and influential. And um, that's still true. And there's more to it than that. And so the four season solution has kind of been the kind of the paradigm or the framework that's been kicking around in the background of all of my other work for about a decade. And um, I tried not to write this book. I tried to leave it in there and just to, to, to leave it alone. It's kind of been boring its way out of my brain for a while. So um, I, I gave in and, 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 you know, kind of try to put my ideas down into one place. And, um, the Four Season Solution really is a prequel or sort of the larger framework to all the rest of my work. Um, so it is the um, broad perspective on food and movement and sleep, but not, I guess, not just sleep, but the sort of the light, dark circadian rhythm, um, which of course includes sleep. And then um, something I've been talking a lot more about the last few years, uh, connection, and that's connection to self, connection to place, connection to other people, um, it's kind of the obvious one. And then also connection to sort of a, a larger sense of purpose and, um, and contribution to something bigger than ourselves. So I kind of took those four pieces and nested them into an oscillating model. Um, and really what I was trying to get at there is that um, biology, nature is highly, dy highly dynamic. It's highly oscillatory. So we have this expansion and contraction cycles on all different timelines and all different body systems and across all different species. And the modern world that's become so increasingly technological has really become very binary. It's very off and on, black or white, ones and zeros. And um, that's not the way our bodies work. And I think trying to kind of fit our very kind of 
flowy, fluctuating, oscillating bodies into a very linear and binary world has really come at great cost to our, our individual and collective health. And so reintroducing some of that oscillation, I think, is an important idea. And that's really what the central idea in the Four Seasons Solution is we would all do better to reintroduce some of the oscillation that has been largely lost through civilization and the industrial revolution and the technological and digital revolutions. And so what I tried to do with this book was to try to give people very practical tools um, to still live in the modern world. I'm not saying we should get rid of electricity or um, you know, have to grow our own food and be homesteaders, um, but the more connection we can have to those natural rhythms, the better off we'll be. Yeah, that's so great. I, it, it's a big project to take on writing this book. I remember you and I had um, met a coffee shop years ago and you were just kind of formulating that idea for this book. Um, in your head. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where trying to kind of because it's such a, a such a comprehensive and kind of integrative approach that it's really hard to talk about different specific behaviors on different timelines um, with different sort of symbolic patterns. And that's really, I mean, the seasons are are literal seasons, but they're also kind of symbols for different experiences in life. And I, I mentioned expansion and contraction as kind of two sides of the same coin a minute ago. But that pattern um, has been kicking around, that, that observation has been kicking around in my head for a long time. And so this has been like layer upon thin layer over many, many years. And um, you're right, uh, trying to formulate and trying to figure out how much I can put in the book and how much I can't and, and trying to kind of get it down to a, um, to a thing that can be organized well was a real, a real challenge to wrestle for sure. Right, especially having a book like Whole30 uh, and it being on the like New York Times bestseller list for, I don't, do you, I mean, you probably, know. I don't even, I, I don't know. I kind of <laughs> lost track. Uh, I, so I think like 80 weeks or something, like it was something crazy. I forget. Yeah. yeah. For a diet book, that's really amazing. And, and it's very specific to food and it's, right. and your book is now this newer book is much more broader and all encompassing. So right. Wow, amazing. I'm glad you got it, got it yeah, done. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. It's, it, it is, it, the whole writing experience was a totally different experience because it's an entirely different kind of book. And so the way you have to kind of construct it is entirely different. And you write the whole 30 was very specific and very tangible and very um, prescriptive. And um, this is almost the exact opposite of that, that this is kind of a, a big think book about how to notice new patterns in your own life, in your own intuition, and to bring those forward in ways that feel really healthy and natural and grounding and intuitive. Um, but it's not, it's not a prescriptive book. I make recommendations. I say, here are the things that I think work better based on the research and my experience, but it's not a do this thing in exactly this way for a specific amount of time. And then everything's going to be wonderful. Um, so there is the, a lot of sort of, um, responsibility, if that's the right word, given back to the reader to say, Hey, this is your life. You have to figure out what works for you. And so there's a, a very wide degree of personalizability, if that's a word, um, to kind of make it work for individuals. Because look, we all live differently. We're all different people. We've got different values and priorities and different biologies. And um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big, broad book. Yeah. So is there anything you learned from Whole30 and writing that and getting that book out there and all the work that you, all, that, um, that you both did to get that book out? Is there mm -hmm. anything you learned from that that you feel like helped you transition into this book? 
Um, I know that was something <laughs> you had, you know, you were prepared to answer, but I kind of. Uh, no, it's totally good. Um, it's a great question. I'm sure I learned a lot of things that got kind of lodged in my brain that I eventually used. Um, but because it, it was such a different kind of project and a different kind of book and a different kind of launch and a different kind of audience, um, I kind of felt a little bit like a fish out of water with this project. Um, you know, my audience is my, my personal audience is much, much smaller than the whole 30 audience was. And it's a different kind of book and so the different kind there's different uh, media platforms that are interested and not interested. And like, I just felt like I was almost basically a first, first time author. So um, I think the thing that I also realized was I have a bad habit of coming up with ideas, sitting on them too long until I think they're refined enough to put them out there. And then by the time they're, I think they're ready, they've been sitting in my brain for so long that I'm no longer excited about them. I had a little bit of that experience with this book. This is kind of speaking candidly. Um, I've, been, I've been thinking about this kind of seasonal model for so long that even when I sat down to write it and then to kind of you know, do sort of planning speaking campaigns and media campaigns, I was like, hey, doesn't everyone already know this? This has been around for years, but it's really only been around for years in my head. Um, so yeah, so I think that the lesson I learned there, both with the whole 30 and with this book is, um, if you have an idea that you want to share, like you just do it right now and like, don't wait till you think you've got it all dialed in and, and fine tuned perfectly because then you probably, at least if you're like me, you'll probably end up kind of losing interest and in going on to other related or unrelated things. Right. Oh, that's, that's, that's great advice. And that, you know, writing a book, I think there's so many people that want to write a book. Um, and that it is something that I think so many of us have a book in us and right. it just kind of stays there and we're like, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. And writing a book is like birthing a child. Like it's like, totally. raising, like <laughs> it's, it's like your baby. And it's, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of work and it's a lot of, I enjoy, I love writing. Um, I keep thinking about my next book. So ah. <laughs> keep percolating on that. But yeah, you're right. It's I like, think that, you just gotta, you gotta do it. You gotta get going. Totally. Well, I think the the the, um, the the gestating comparison is a great one because I kind of feel like I gestated this book for a decade, and by the time I actually had the baby, I was just sick of being pregnant with the baby. <laughs> so it's a great comparison, actually. <laughs> so I uh, so I think it's really interesting, though, when you talk about this, like, there was a lot going on in your mind. You're thinking about it a lot. Yet with these changes that have just occurred with the pandemic and people staying home and, and actually some of the things that are happening, like people gardening more, people getting, getting in their backyard, going on walks more, getting back into nature. Do you feel like what, you know, with these changes, do you feel like maybe this is a good time for people to embrace your book and the message in it? Yeah, I think it's I think it's actually the perfect time, and it's I think it's a great point. Um, you know, in the kind of the the, the latter part of the book, um, I talk about this sort of pivot out of a chronic summer kind of mode, um, and we can talk about that I guess more if you want. But um, I talk about this 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 change, which is essentially a shift from perpetual expansion and kind of just stimulation and being on the go and and focusing on. Um, productivity and and whether it is career or raising a family or whatever and we get to this point somewhere often in our kind of 30s or 40s and we're like what is going on like I am thrashed and so what I write into the book is this kind of this opportunity 
opportunity or the suggestion for a pivot, a, a directional change, and really it's a slowing down. And so I think what we're getting kind of collectively with the pandemic is a forced slowing down um, in a lot of ways. You know, we're, we're certainly not physically moving around as much as we were. Um, you know, and schedules may be different, but they may actually just be a little bit slower too and less, less hectic. And I think all of that's a good thing. So in a way, this particular moment in history is a perfect opportunity to take that, to, to kind of, to, to change um, the way that we've been moving through the world individually and collectively um, in a direction that is more slow and present and grounded and connected to the things that matter most to us um, people and places in the natural world. And I think a lot of people have really done that already. Like you say, people are outside, they're gardening and they're hiking and they're riding bikes and they're doing that just by virtue of being spring and it feels good and we're limited on the other stuff we can do. Um, so it kind of, in a way, I really think this is a great opportunity to, to kind of jump on that train um, because it is also something that is now much more kind of common and socially acceptable. Whereas six months ago, if you would have said, I'm not going to go to the, you know, all of the, the social events and, and I'm going to stay home more and I'm going to, you know, spend more time by myself and I'm going to spend more time in my home. And um, people might say like, well, that's fine, but that doesn't sound very fun. Um, because there is a lot of kind of judgment about people who are more um, slow moving and introverted and uh, who are more selective about their social engagements and who manage their time with a lot of, um, I guess, good, healthy boundaries, really. Um, and now everyone's kind of forced into that. So it actually is a little more socially acceptable to do more of that. And I think that's a great opportunity. So yes to your question for sure. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's talk more about what these four seasons are and does it tie into Chinese medicine? I think that that's one of the things that, you know, yeah. is in my mind. Yeah. Um, the short answer is no, I have no background in Chinese medicine. Um, I'm only like very, in a very cursory fashion familiar with it. Um, but I've had um, quite a few practitioners come to me and say, hey, I read your book and it sounds a lot like, like TCM or sounds a lot like Ayurveda in terms of the sort of phasic seasonal kind of approaches. So I think in a way... I, coming from more of the scientific research clinical end of things, um, sort of made some of the same observations, um, kind of unbeknownst to, to me at the time of writing the book, that do kind of line up a lot with Chinese medicine um, stuff. And it, there are some similarities and some differences. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that mine is more correct. It's just a slightly different way of looking at it. Um, but, the, but the concepts of you know, different behaviors and different experiences at different times of the day, different times of the literal season, you know, different times of the year. And on the longer timeline, sort of the, the seasons of our life, the, that, that, you know, full lifetime timeline, that's something that, I, that, that this model shares with all of those other models, um, that we should be doing different things at different times. And we haven't done a very good job of accommodating for that in the modern world. Yeah. Okay. So let's, so when you talk about summer, yeah, um, that was one of the things that did, we, we kind of get caught up in this chronic summer. You mentioned that. Yeah. What does that mean? What does summer represent? And, and why are we in a chronic summer? So I'll, I'll back up and start with spring because, because that's sort of the, the, and the comparison of seasons going to time of day and going to kind of our lives. Spring is the beginning right? And so spring is the time of energy and anticipation and excitement and looking forward and kind of being naturally propelled into new things and it's novelty seeking. And, it, and it's like, 
you think about the like the sort of titillating experience of spring like we're excited there's new stuff we want to get outside we want to start an exercise program we want to clean out the garage we want to get working in the garden and those are just spontaneous things that arise in us in the springtime and that occurs also that's basically sort of analogous to waking up in the morning and it's also analogous to the spring, the early years of our life, um, kind of childhood and adolescence and, and young adulthood. So that's kind of the beginning part. So all of that from a sort of neurotransmitter standpoint aligns with the experience of dopamine. Dopamine is um, excitement and anticipation and reward and it's fun and it's fun and it's fun. And that's the time of looking forward and, and kind of moving forward, sort of chasing after something. So that happens in the morning when we're getting going and looking forward to the day. It occurs um, in the springtime, like I just spoke about, and it occurs in the spring of our lives as we're looking forward and kind of going out into this bigger world. We're expanding out into the world. So then summertime is the time of maximum expansion of success and stress and productivity and lots of you know new ideas and new people and new places and new activities and like it's a time when we apply everything we have all of our juice all of our energy to doing the thing and so that's kind of the um midday or kind of early to midlife the kind of the the big productivity years of let's say 25 to 50 and um it's also um it's also the kind of the summer, the literal summer when we kind of get really like we're pushing hard, we're doing lots of stuff and that's all normal and that's all good. So I say stress um, and I say stress because we're, it's the time that we're, we're moving fast and working hard, but that's a good thing, right? And so the, uh, the hormone adrenaline um, is sort of the symbolic um, measure or the, sim the, sort of the placeholder for summer because it is something that makes us good at doing the thing, the task at hand, you know, whatever that, whatever that is. So stress is not bad. Stress is totally appropriate episodically, but the way civilization is built and in particular, the accelerating digital modern civilization um, is built around maximum stress and maximum stimulation and maximum productivity. And there's no, natural down cycle there every you know across the course of a year there would be spring and then summer and then fall and then winter and summer would be a quarter of that roughly um but that's not how we live we live like it's summertime all the time with long days short nights chronic sleep restriction chronic stress um we taught we 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 either exercise um in the same way year round meaning there's not changes season to season or um we kind of we push ourselves super super hard in the both mental and emotional and even physical realms in the sort of neurotic i have to lose weight i have to be healthier i have to achieve a certain body image kind of way and all of those things are summer kind of behaviors and so they're not wrong in their time but when we stretch that out indefinitely right that's hence the, the kind of term chronic summer because the premise written into the book and certainly fundamental there is that chronic summer begets chronic disease. And so then um, I hope it's obvious then that uh, one of the solutions to chronic disease is actually um, rebalancing those seasons, those different sort of modes of behavior and modes of experience. And so that includes eating differently, moving differently, sleeping differently, and connecting differently at different times of the year and different times of our lives. And um, so moving from the chronic summer overstimulation into a more fall restorative 
um, healing contractive kind of mode is that pivot that we can start to do now during a pandemic and when our, when our schedules and lives are a little bit different. And, and then we can um, extend going forward so that our lives look a little bit slower, a little bit more um, contracted for a while, because then we can start to reintroduce that natural rhythm again. So there's sort of this, this sort of therapeutic intervention, if you will, to kind of offset the chronic summer. And then there's the, the reestablishment of a normal rhythm beyond that. So it's sort of a, a phasic approach in that sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so then fall and winter, can you can, you know, um, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So if, if spring and summer are the stimulating, stressful, expansive seasons, then fall and winter are the restorative, contractive seasons. And um, I talked about kind of hormones and neurotransmitters as sort of the sort of placeholders or symbols for that. Well, fall, and if you think about Thanksgiving specifically in North America, that's kind of our um, our fall experience, one that kind of we really identify with. But fall is about slowing down and coming home and contraction and feeling grounded and feeling reconnected when we've been away and we are now coming home to reconnect with the things that matter most to us. And it is um, belonging and community and gratitude and contribution and a sense of, of legacy of something bigger than ourselves. And what often happens when you spontaneous or when you kind of have that really grounded grateful experience is spontaneous gratitude and, um, and, and generosity that goes in there. And so that's the whole experience of fall. And so much of that is around um, or kind of produced by um, the neurotransmitter serotonin. Um, serotonin, of course, is known for belonging and community and closeness and intimacy. And that's the experience of fall. That, and that can, that can only happen when we come home and slow down. That can't happen when we're going crazy out there in the world. So then the that experience of slowing down and contracting and being more present in the fall continues to an even greater degree into the winter because winter is analogous to nighttime to sleep so it's a, it's a maximally contracted maximally restorative experience and i argue that a lot of the downturn in mood that a lot of people experience in the winter time um, that we think of as oh i'm having depression because it's dark and cold I argue that a lot of that is actually fairly normal, um, that in the wintertime, it is normal to feel more uh, loss and grief. And it is normal because, again, part of this kind of largest societal um, or kind of civilizational um, premise is that things should be fun and happy all the time. And that is not the worldview that I hold. I don't think that that joyful and happy and fun and energetic is actually normal to have 100% of the time. So then winter's slowing down and contraction is an opportunity to heal and grieve and let go of things. And also to per, sort of to, to restore ourselves so that in the next step, in the next phase, we're able to kind of go out and have that springtime or morning energy again. And um, so one of the other premises in the book is that if we don't complete each of those phases kind of in turn, we are ill-prepared to experience the next phase, the next step, the next stage, the next season to its, in its entirety. And um, I think winter going into spring is the really obvious example there. In the same way as if you don't get enough deep restorative sleep at night, you don't wake up in the morning feeling energetic and motivated. You feel um, kind of like that same flat, low energy 
depressed mood kind of thing that would be normal to feel kind of going into the evening and sleeping, kind of quieting down and contracting. And if you feel that in the morning, it's because you didn't get enough sleep the night before. And that's the same thing is true. If you feel that in the springtime, it's because you didn't do the winter restorative components as, as completely. So, um, and so the winter then just to kind of tag on, um, the, uh, hormone that goes along with winter is melatonin, right? And so because in the winter, it's normal for us to get a lot more sleep, to spend a lot more time in darkness. Um, so not just on the circadian, on the daily timeline, but also on the longer timeline of, of going into each winter season, we should be getting a lot more deep restorative sleep and all the wonderful antioxidant properties that go with melatonin. The thing that I also find fascinating that kind of really got me thinking about this, like you have to do the things in phases, is the fact that each of those um, sequences, like dopamine gets biochemically transformed in your body into noradrenaline and adrenaline. And serotonin gets biochemically conformed in, biochemically transformed into melatonin. And so there's literally, a, there's a biochemical sequence there, not just a sort of human experiential sequence. And I think that's super interesting that the way this sort of like our bodies, the, the order they do things in is the order that, we should do things in a long, on longer timelines. And I'm just fascinated by all the sort of fractal patterns. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I love this idea that we learn, we can learn so much from nature. I mean, of course, I'm a naturopathic physician. I truly believe in the healing powers of nature. Totally. But the true, like the true underlining meaning of that is get, actually get in nature, not just like totally supplements in a jar, but you know, like putting your feet in the grass and the dirt yeah. and reconnecting with nature. And I, I've loved that I've had more time to do that lately, um, to really just sit. And um, I, I actually spent a day going out at different times. I woke one morning, I woke up at 5.55 in the morning and I'm like, and the sun is, you know, coming up and I'm like, I need to get outside. Yeah. So I actually sat in the grass and like, just felt what it was like at that time of the day. And then I would go back in the same spot throughout the day at different times nice. to just see how the world felt differently. Hmm. And I think that we forget that there's so many answers to our health and happiness that are just around us. And totally. so I love that you've connected this idea of seasons and that what we can learn from nature and these cycles and, um, and the importance of all of it into your book. So let's talk about how practically speaking, what does this mean for people? Like how can we learn from this model of how we live our lives differently and so that we can achieve better health and happiness. Yeah. Um, I, I said earlier, this book wasn't particularly prescriptive and I, I don't feel like it is, but I, I do have general recommendations because people need starting points. Right. And so there's this kind of this big, you know, kind of nerdy idea of this oscillating model and all this. Um, but I also like really simple heuristics. And so across the different, you know, areas of food and movement and sleep and connection, I give kind of central kind of guiding principles or what I call anchors um, of things that people should be doing year round and kind of the most central things. And the heuristic for food is really easy. Um, and I've been saying this for a long time. It's um, eat whole, uh, eat, eat whole foods that are, plants and animals that still look like plants and animals in their kind of whole unprocessed form that are available locally and regionally, full stop. Like that's it, it's that simple, you know? Um, and we make diet extremely complicated. Um, and I think it can be a lot simpler than it is for a lot of people. Um, because what I notice over the years is that the more 
connected I am to my body's own innate wisdom, my own intuition, the more I know what I need to eat at any given time of year. And, um, and almost always that looks like eating the food that's available in my garden or at the farmer's market. And so in the springtime, that looks a lot like, a, you know, lots of greens and, you know, sort of in a general way, it looks a little bit like a Mediterranean diet. Um, and so I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea also that a lot of the nutrition research, kind of just going back to my nutrition background, what I noticed that a lot of the well-supported nutrition approaches, the kind of diets, if you will, um, that have fairly strong um, kind of research behind them, on one hand, it's really confusing because, um, you know, you can look and say that a plant-based or vegetarian diet or vegan diet has, you know, all of the supporting evidence. And on the other hand, you can say a you know, low carb, high fat or ketogenic diet has all the supporting evidence and they kind of seem to be mutually exclusive there. Um, and, you know, you can look at paleo diet or you can look at Mediterranean diet and each of those things kind of starts to look a little bit like one of the sort of seasonal diets when you sort of nest them in kind of what's available locally. So Mediterranean diet might be spring, a kind of a diet rich in uh, plant foods um, that tends to be higher carbohydrate, somewhat lower fat, um, would look like a summertime diet. That's a you know plant-based or vegetarian diet. And the fall might look like a, kind of a low-carb, high-fat or paleo-type diet. And the winter might get as, as extreme as a short-term ketogenic diet. And so what you have is opportunities to have all the physiological adaptations to each of those dietary approaches for the short-term without the negative effects of trying to make those diets work for any individual for an extended period of time, which is what I saw as a clinician so often was people would do really well in one of these approaches for three months, six months, a year, and into the second year, into the third year, things started to really um, go a lot less well. And so I think what we can do from a nutritional standpoint is um, just basically immerse yourselves and go back to that simple heuristic of like eat the food that's available locally and everything else takes care of itself. You get all of that physiological adaptations along the way and you don't have to weigh and measure and track and get kind of neurotic about your food. You can just literally eat what's around and everything else sort of just sorts itself out. Um, on movement, um, kind of going back to the simple heuristics, um, you know, what we look at for people or what we look at or what we see in the research um, that makes people strong and independent into their much later years is that they maintain physical strength, maintain muscle mass. Um, along with that comes the, the bone density and bone strength. And they maintain mobility, they maintain, you know, joint and, and connective tissue mobility. And so that comes from regular applications of um, functional movement patterns and moving joints through motion. Um, and so then the anchor behavior for movement is strength training done, you know, several times a week. And again, the exact number is less important than the principle. So you keep your body and your connective tissue strong and mobile. And then in the spring through fall, you do an increased amount, increased duration of general movement, which is kind of what you want to do anyway, right? In the spring, you're excited to go out and do more movement and be outside more. In the summer, you want to be going on long hikes or long bike rides or going to the lake and swimming and just kind of messing around. So it's this extended duration, but relatively low intensity movement. And in the winter, it's a lot more um, compressed in the sort of high intensity interval training or strength training and not many hours a day of just general activity. So again, it is do what your body tells you to do at any given season. And it usually ends up working out um, pretty naturally as you kind of tune into that innate wisdom um, to be uh, 
anchor of strength training and then longer duration stuff um, in the warmer months. Sleep's also really easy. Um, the sleep, the guideline there is the closer you can get your own circadian rhythm as anchored to your environment, the light in your environment, the closer you can get that to what's going on with the sun outside, the better off you're going to be. And what that means, and it's, it's actually that simple, right? What that, so what that means is you're up early and you're up late in the summertime and you're sleeping in a bit more and going to bed much earlier in the wintertime. And the spring and fall are kind of midpoints there. So actually I said to my girlfriend just a couple of days ago, I was waking up earlier and it was like, you know, 8 p.m. And I hadn't even had dinner yet. And I was like, oh, I'm so ready for this to be over because I'm already tired and it's not even the longest day of the year. Um, but that's the, that's the sensation that so many of us end up with over the course of year, years and decades is that long days, short nights, tired, beaten down. And that's a normal feeling in the summertime. Um, and, um, I'm actually just kind of over it. Like, I'm like, never mind. I want to go to bed early. Um, and then the anchor for connection is, um, quite perhaps obviously is the anchor connection to the most important people in your life, whether that as romantic partner, close family, closest friends. Um, and in a way I'm calling for leaving behind the, huge amount of social stimulation that is normal in the summertime of traveling, meeting new people, neighborhood barbecues, block parties, you know, the big social events. And, and, and I lump social media into that same um, type of social interaction where it's relatively superficial with a large amount of people. And I am encouraging people to contract and slow down and move back towards fewer people and much more deeper vulnerable connections. And I think that that's a lot, the thing that a lot of people in general are noticing the need for and including this specific pandemic time is that we're doing that naturally, almost in, in a lot of ways, even forced. So all of that's a, a good thing, I think. Yeah, that's amazing. I love all that insight and it, it, it completely makes sense. And you know, I guess one question I have is obviously people around the world have different types of seasons. Like this, that the type of seasons that you're talking about, you and I live in Utah and there's definitely mm -hmm. different you know, distinct seasons. And, but even between the 30 minute difference of where you and I live, totally, it's different up here. We have a much For shorter sure. growing season up in park city. Um, and you know, we have snow on the ground longer that sort of thing. You guys, I love going down to Salt Lake city in the spring because I see more flowers earlier. Totally. And that sort of thing. But you know, just even within our little 30 minute di mm -hmm. uh, difference of time, there's a difference in the seasons and what we experience. And then of course there's, you know, Alaska and then there's, you know, the you know, <laughs> all totally. different. So are we looking at it? Do you, do you focus on where you live, where your ancestors lived um, or do we kind of meet somewhere in the middle? That's a great question. Um, actually, that's a great question. I've, I, um, and I've thought, I thought about that a lot in putting this model together because um, obviously the world being kind of as global as it is and us being sort of most of us being of somewhat mixed kind of ethnic and racial and genetic descent, um, you know, lots of times our ancestors were from all over the place. And if you've ever done like a 23andMe or anything like that, you're like, oh, wait, I got people, I've got ancestors in Mongolia, like what, you know? Um, but the short answer there is it is a mix heavily weighted towards what your local environment is. So you could consider your kind of genetic background, you know, kind of where your ancestors were from. 
but even but but that's still looking at the evolutionary timeline and still focusing on the very 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 recent past and so i'm zooming out even farther than that saying what's the what's the broadest brush i can paint with here and the broadest brush is human physiology adapts to the local environment whatever that local environment is quite quickly and quite significantly and even though we've got all sorts of genetic splicing gone on in the last several thousand years um, the key principle is that our physiology is dictated by our local environment primarily um, so that's sort of 80 or 90 percent of the influence um, so even like i had a friend who um, whose family is from india who immigrated to um, the uk when he was a kid and he's like, what do I do? And I was like, you pretend you're from the UK. Like that's just, you go with your local environment, even though your, your, your blood is from elsewhere. Um, and that's, a, that's an imperfect, um, sort of non-quantifiable answer. Um, but in my experience working with people, um, when you go different places, like that local environment is by far the strongest influence. So if you live somewhere that has, you know, uh, um, I did a, a podcast interview just a couple of days ago, um, with a woman who was from South Africa who had then moved to Texas. And she's like, we only really, really have two seasons in Texas. It's like ungodly hot or it's kind of cool. And she's like, but you know, that's kind of the, the two, the two things. And um, the, the way to kind of answer that in a, like, what do you do then kind of way is that you still check in with your local environment and let that, let that guide you. Um, because there are still changes in that sort of expansion and contraction pattern. Um, even if you live close to the equator and there's not significant, you know, um, day of length or, or length of day changes, um, you're still using your local environment as your guide. And if you have very minimal seasonal oscillation, you know, month upon month and year upon year, what it means is that you have to take all of your behaviors and sort of compress the amplitude down to a midpoint. And so, you know, chronic summer is actually, you know, one pole way out here. So actually, if you live to the equator, I'm kind of generalizing here, but if you live at the equator, since spring and fall are kind of the midpoints between the extremes of summer and winter, spring and fall would actually be a, a good generalized way of living from a style standpoint, if you live at the equator and there wasn't a really significant variation season to season, rather than choosing summer or winter as the, um, as the extreme, as the, as the fixed point. Because um, we've basically globally in the modern world chosen summer as the fixed point, and we've we've missed out on this entire rest of the range that we should be oscillating through every single year. So, super good question. Great. Well, that's amazing. And so, um, I, Dallas this has been so fascinating. And we, of course, I could keep asking you a question. We could keep talking about this for a long time, but I'm sure people would love to know where they can get your book. Book. So, where sure. we'll get your book and find out more about you. Yeah. Um, the easiest you can, you can get my book pretty much anywhere books are sold it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I really encourage people to support their local independent booksellers. Um, some of which are starting to reopen many of which have online websites um, or online ordering systems. Um, so I really encourage that they're um, really wonderful supporters of authors in general. So I kind of always send people that way. Um, you can check out my website, dallasharwick.com. Um, and I don't do a ton on social media, but I'm kind of medium, somewhat active on Instagram and that's just at Dallas Hartwig. So, um, check me out. That's great. So I'm going to give a little plug for my local bookstore just because yeah, yeah Dolly's bookstore is our local Park City bookstore. They're fantastic. So nice. <laughs> it's good for people to know. I, I love, yeah, I love the King. I love the King's English here in Salt Lake. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. 
All right. Well, Dallas, thank you so much for coming on today and all of your valuable information. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see what's coming next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this interview today with Dallas Hartwig. To learn more about him and his new book, you can go to thespotdoctor.com. Go to the podcast page with his interview and you'll find all the information and links there. And while you're there, I invite you to join the Spot Doctor community so you don't miss any of our upcoming shows and information. If you haven't already taken the skin quiz, I encourage you to go to theskinquiz.com. Find out what messages your skin is trying to tell you about your health and what you can do about it at theskinquiz.com. Also, I invite you to join the Spot Doctor on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us there at the Spot Doctor. And I'll see you next time on the Spot Doctor podcast. <laughs>